This is Pittsburgh Explainer from 90.5 WESA. Every week we help you catch up on the headlines from southwestern Pennsylvania. It's Friday, March 19th. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Liz Reed. Prisons have been hotspots for coronavirus transmission. Tight living quarters make it easy for the virus to spread. And with staff and inmates coming in and out of the facilities daily, it's nearly impossible to prevent outbreaks from spreading to the broader community. While correctional facilities aren't included in the state's current phase of vaccination eligibility, three Pennsylvania prisons have received vaccines for their incarcerated populations. Spotlight PA's Joseph Darius Jafari reported this week on the novel approach they're using to convince people to get their shots. Joseph, welcome to Explainer. Thank you so much for having me. So what are these facilities doing to entice people to get vaccinated? they are giving money to inmates. And that's not quite a novel approach, right? We see this done on the outside quite a bit. When you go to your giant store, sometimes the store will give you $5 off your grocery bill if you get the flu vaccine, right? So it's it's not too different from what we're seeing on the outside in certain areas, but it is novel in the fact that this hasn't really been done in prisons before, especially in Pennsylvania. And they kind of took the idea from Uh, Last year, they recognized that, you know, they were going into flu season and that the coronavirus and COVID-19 kind of mimics the flu uh, as far as like symptoms. And so they kind of said, how do we get people to, you know, reduce the flu within prisons? Uh, so we can pinpoint when COVID is happening, right? When somebody's actually having COVID symptoms. And so they started off by giving inmates $5 in commissary back in October if they got a flu vaccine. Now, keep in mind that prisons are notoriously bad with healthcare. And so in the past, you know, the flu vaccines uptake among inmates was around 20% each year. Last year, it was 48%. And they directly correlated that to the $5 incentive. But 48% is not good enough for the COVID vaccine, especially if people want to be outside of their cells and stuff like that. And so we don't know this for a fact, but I imagine they just kind of said, how do we up it? And so they said $25. And what's great is that this doesn't come from taxpayer money. This comes from money from inmates, you know, when you buy something at the commissary, when you have to pay a fee or a fine or something within the prison, that all goes into a general inmate welfare fund, which financed this entire incentive. So basically inmates were paying themselves back. Now, public health officials, they worry about vaccine reluctance. Polls show a significant number of people who don't plan on getting vaccinated or are skeptical about getting the shot. Is that something officials are seeing in prisons too? To some degree, yes, and to some degree, no. I will say that there is vaccine hesitancy in places where you'd expect, right? So you'd expect a bit of vaccine hesitancy from people who maybe don't listen a lot to the news or anything like that, and so they don't quite understand how it works. And so the same thing is kind of happening. Also, we're, we're hearing anecdotally that corrections officers are kind of spreading conspiracy theories about the vaccine. I spoke with one inmate over in Muncie who said that the corrections officer was saying that, you know, there's nanochips in the vaccine. And so what the DOC did, or individual prisons really, um, in Muncie, for example, is they they have peer counselors. And so they said, listen, the inmate population doesn't trust us, rightfully so. We want you guys to spread the information about the vaccines because if they're they're not going to listen to us, they're going to listen to you. And so they started having these peer counselors within the prisons talk to other inmates. You know, it's like how 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 it works, how how the vaccines actually work. 
to kind of dispel any myths. And, you know, one of the people that I spoke to, one of the inmates that I spoke to, uh, she was very hesitant about the $25 incentive because, if anything, she thought that was going to play more into vaccine hesitancy. Why are you guys paying us to do this, right? But the opposite happened. A lot of people took it up. And maybe it was in conjunction with, you know, the peer counselors. Maybe it was just the incentive in itself. So that's kind of where I think that we're seeing the vaccine hesitancy not as big inside as it is outside. So what percentage of of incarcerated people in in these prisons um, that have received vaccine are are opting for the shot? We only know what the DOC will tell us. And the DOC has not been incredibly transparent about their vaccine procedures so far. You know, we reported the fact that they had like really big data discrepancies in what they were using for coronavirus tracking. And so they took their tracker offline. We were supposed to know exactly what was going on with vaccines. Uh, by now, we still don't. But what we do know, and it's kind of what they've said through testimony during the budget hearings and stuff like that, in two different facilities, we have up to 73% of people opting for the vaccination. And that's two out of three that we know about fully. Now, again, this is only three of the state's 23 prisons that have received vaccines. Uh, more broadly, how is the Department of Corrections doing at containing the coronavirus? Again, we don't really know because once they took off the data dashboard, we kind of went into a blackout. We didn't have as much information as we wanted to. You know, the ACLU recently published a report that basically just gave Pennsylvania an F with data transparency. To their credit, they've tried to be transparent about things, but it's, they, it's almost like keep dropping the ball. Um, but what we do know is that inside these facilities where there has been vaccinations, Transmission seems to be down, right, which is exactly the point of what you want. But there are definitely still outbreaks within individual prisons. Joseph, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Ayers, the local host of All Things Considered here at 90.5 WESA. You know, the last year has been a turbulent, sometimes scary, oftentimes lonely one. And a lot in our world has changed. But I'd like to think that WESA is not. In fact, I'd like to think that this station has doubled down on what it does best. The pandemic, racial justice protests, an election, a new administration, all of these events have had reverberations ranging from the local to the global. And WESA and NPR have been here with you the entire time, providing you the information that you need to navigate it all. The only reason we've been able to do it, though, is with financial support from listeners like yourself. Your contribution, at whatever level you see fit, pays for the nonprofit journalism that you've come to rely on every day. So please help us keep doing the work that keeps you informed. Support Pittsburgh's NPR news station at WESA.FM, and thanks. Bars, restaurants, and entertainment venues have been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. It's not just about the bottom line for the owners of these businesses. Many workers find themselves scraping by with diminished hours and tips. A new local initiative seeks to raise a quarter of a million dollars to help these workers. It's an effort of a number of groups, including Pittsburgh Restaurant Workers Aid and the U.S. Bartenders Guild. WESA's Bill O'Driscoll is here with more. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Liz. Is there a way to quantify the impact of the pandemic on this industry? Well, it's uh, there's a lot of different measures of it. Uh, one, I will say, a number that stuck out for me was back in December, uh, University of Pittsburgh Center for Urban and Social Research estimated that between October of 2019 and October of 2020, 31,000 
restaurant workers in Allegheny County had lost their jobs. So that's an enormous number. You know, I think that gives some sense of it. What's being done at the the policy level? You know, this is a grassroots grant effort. What's being done at the policy level to help these businesses and these workers? Well, there are some government programs now that are coming around. The state has this program that's specifically targeted at restaurants. It would give $13.7 million in Allegheny County, specifically targeted at restaurants. At the federal level, the brand new relief package assigned into law would provide $28.6 billion for independent restaurants in the form of grants from the Small Business Administration. So those things would be helpful at least to the businesses themselves. On the matter of uh, live performance venues like concert halls, there's the Save Our Stages Act, which is also part of this federal relief package. That's $15 billion for uh, places that do live music, live theater, comedy, things like that. And a number of those, uh, especially for-profit venues, we've seen close in Pittsburgh during the pandemic. So that sector is badly in need of help as well. It's also worth noting that the governor, Governor Wolf, announced last week that restaurants um, and bars would be open to greater capacity, restrictions loosening starting April 4th. Is that likely to help the industry recover? Well, it'll certainly let restaurants open at bigger capacity. Now and up until April 4th, you can't serve alcohol unless you're also serving food. That might have convinced some places that are primarily alcohol-serving establishments not to even bother to open. So if those places open, other places can expand their capacity. Yeah, sure, it should help the businesses and, and it, you know, that should help some of the workers too. at least, you know, get their paychecks and get tips. I have to think, though, that it, it's got to feel a little bit like a double-edged sword for some of these workers because many of them are not yet eligible to be vaccinated unless they have a qualifying condition or are over age 65, right? Yeah, that's right. It is a big concern. And actually, uh, uh, some of the groups are starting to get more outspoken about it. The Pittsburgh Restaurant Workers Aid, as well as the U.S. Bartenders Guild and other groups have spoken out and said, look, if you're going to if you're going to open up more, we're going to be in contact with more people. There's going to be people maybe packed tight, tighter into these restaurants. We need vaccinations if we're going to be interacting with the public like this because it's just too risky. And the, the latest timeline we have seen from the state is moving into phase 1B, which will include many of these workers by April. Bill, thanks so much for your time. Sure thing, Liz. It's time for another break. Stay with us. Hi, this is Noelle King from NPR. There's a lot to keep up with in the news. And one way you can help, donate that vehicle you're not using anymore. It could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Thank you, and here's how to get started. Visit wesa.fm cars. Hydraulic fracturing or fracking can be a tough issue for Pennsylvania Democrats to navigate. Environmental groups oppose the practice, but union supporters say banning it outright would cost jobs. The issue is likely to play a big role in the race for an open U.S. Senate seat next year. WESA's Lucy Perkins looked at one politician's stance on the issue, Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Lucy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Liz. So before Fetterman held statewide office, he was the mayor of Braddock. What was his position on fracking then? Right. So he first ran for Senate in 2016. And back then, he signed a pledge for a moratorium, so a a pause on fracking, until there were better environmental protections and regulations for the industry. And, you know, back then, we also have him on tape saying that there should be no fracking 
near people's houses, near people's schools. Um, he said that it would just be crazy to drill that close to where people actually live. So that's what he was saying back then. And his campaign says he's been consistent on the issue this whole time. So why are critics saying his stance has changed then? Well, Fetterman says that his stance hasn't changed, as I said, but some things have happened since that first Senate run. First of all, uh, there was a proposed fracking site in Braddock where he was mayor, and that fracking site was going to be right across the street from his house. It was going to be at U.S. Steel's Edgar Thompson Works uh, in, in Braddock. And environmental groups say that you know, he he used to oppose the idea of fracking so co- close to where people live, but that, you know, maybe he's he's made some exception here. And and he said the economic opportunity of the money that this would save for Edgar Thompson Works was just too good to pass up. And that's why he supported fracking at, at this site so close to home. That's really interesting. I mean, he's saying his stance hasn't changed, and yet he supported a fracking site that was close to people's houses, right? How does he square those two things? Well, he says, you know, when I talked to him about it, I, I basically just asked, you know, so so it sounds like in this particular instance, you were thinking about the economics of the situation rather than the potential side effects that could be more negative. And what he would say is that since his first Senate run, there have been more environmental protections put in place and regulations for the fracking industry to help protect against any negative side effects of of drilling. I talked to environmental groups who did say, yeah, technically that's true. There are more protections. There's, you know, a new permit that regulates methane emissions from unconventional wells. But environmental groups also say that there are so many harmful side effects from fracking that the current regulations and protections in place just aren't sufficient. What about the other Democrat vying for this nomination, State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta? Uh, where does he fall on fracking? Yeah, so first of all, what I will say is that um, the the field will grow. Uh, <laughs> we are we are pretty far out from this election still. And I, I do think it's important to bring up what uh, State Rep. Kenyatta said, just because, as you, you mentioned, this is going to be a, a pretty big issue in the race. Um, but we just haven't heard from any other candidates yet. But when Kenyatta announced his run back in February, he was asked about fracking. I asked him about it. Other reporters asked him about it. And just just as, as Fetterman kind of says, like, you know, eventually fracking uh, will be phased out just because clean energy and sustainable forms of energy will be the norm. Kenyatta kind of said the same thing. You know, he said clean energy is really important and Pennsylvania should be a place where we can develop those resources. But it's also really important that we have good union jobs. And and when, you know, he was pressed on, so do you support a moratorium? He said yes, but he wouldn't weigh in on what that meant for people who have jobs in the fracking industry right now. You know, someone asked, well, does that mean that you would want fracking jobs to go away tomorrow? And and he, you know, really deflected. So it's going to be a tricky issue for Democrats <laughs> to navigate. Um, but it's one that it's important to note. Fetterman, you know, has had more practice weighing in on because fracking is a, is a much bigger issue out here in western Pennsylvania than it is uh, on the eastern side of the state where candidates like uh, State Rep. Kenyatta are based. Knowing what you know about the Democratic voter base in Pennsylvania, like how are these positions likely to play with these primary voters? Well, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, as as you outlined, environmental groups say that a ban, an outright ban is more popular. But Democrats are also worried about 
alienating uh, union groups that benefit from the fracking industry. So Fetterman and other candidates are going to be trying to navigate this. And I spoke with a Democratic political consultant who basically said, you know, even though it might not be popular to to environmental groups, what Fetterman is advocating for here, which is basically like keep fracking, make sure there are good environmental protections. He said that's actually a really popular and successful way to win a primary election. So um, Fetterman is is threading that needle and and uh, could successfully do so in next year's primary. Lucy, thanks for laying all this out for us. Thanks, Liz. That's Pittsburgh Explainer for this week. Our show is produced by Katie Blackley and edited by Lucy Perkins. You can find all of our news coverage at our website, WESA.FM, and of course on the air at 90.5 WESA. I'm your host, Liz Reed. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week. Mm-hmm.